We welcome you to Pursuing Justice. I'm your host, Harriet Hendel. The last two podcasts, we had the great pleasure of speaking with the author of Invisible Child, Andrea Elliott, and legal aid lawyer, Josh Goldfein. The book centered around an actual family of 10, including eight children, all living in a homeless shelter in one room. The oldest child was Dasani, age 11. Her spirit, her eagerness to learn, but mainly her resilience reminds me of someone very close to my heart whose story we will be hearing today. Children to me are hope for the future, the most vulnerable of us all. Through no fault of their own, they become victims of the welfare system, the foster care system, poverty, the courts, the homeless shelter network, and on and on. At the start of Invisible Child, there's a quotation from James Baldwin, which resonated with me. He says, for these are all our children. We will all profit from or pay for what they become. I met Robin Ledbetter, our guest today, in October of 2009 at a women's prison in Connecticut where she was serving a 50-year sentence for felony murder, having been arrested at age 14. I learned about her as a result of being a volunteer teacher at a men's maximum security prison three miles from my home in upstate New York. My 120 students were required to attend school in order to pass their GED. I was working on the essay portion of that test with them, and each of my classes had 20 men. I chose a novel approach, read aloud part of memoirs by a whole variety of authors, beginning with the Black experience, Barack Obama, Henry Louis Gates, Antoine Fisher, Jeffrey Canada. My goal was to show the men that painful experiences that they had experienced in their own childhoods made great material for an essay. And along the way, I came across a book edited by the author Wally Lamb, who wrote She's Come Undone, and I Know This Much is True. The book was a collection of stories and poems by women at York Correctional Institution in Niantic, Connecticut. It was called Couldn't Keep It to Myself. After reading that book, I discovered a second book by the women at York called I'll Fly Away published in 2007. One story touched me deeply. Its title was A Gift by Robin Ledbetter. After sharing it with all my classes at Greenhaven Correctional Facility, a few of the men insisted that I write to Robin to tell her how much the men loved her story. I was a bit unsure how to do that. Their advice, look her up on the internet. The men don't have any access to the internet, which I thought was pretty amusing. I wrote to Robin in April of 2009, but didn't hear back from her until late August. She had been dealing with the aftermath of a suicide attempt, 
and was isolated in the mental health ward at her prison. By the time we completed all the steps to allow us to visit, it was nearly time to fly to Florida where we traditionally spent the winter months. So on October the 29th, 2009, we drove the nearly three hours to Connecticut for our first of many visits with Robin. She was somewhat shy at first. Neither my husband nor I had ever visited anyone in a prison before. We were permitted a brief hug, then seated across a long table from Robin. I no longer recall what we spoke of, but we never ran out of conversation. And that fact never changed in the 80 plus visits we made over the ensuing years. The visits are clocked at exactly two hours. You are not permitted to bring anything into the visiting room except the key to the locker where you deposit your wallet, change, car keys, and coat. Before entering the visiting room, you must clear the metal detector. Unlike prisons I visited, after those years following 2009, there were no machines dispensing drinks and food and no restrooms inside of the visiting room. If you needed one, you had to leave and were not permitted to come back. We were seated right next to other visitors. At times, the decibel level of the conversations were so loud we had trouble hearing Robin. Changing your seat is forbidden. For the next 10 years, we drove to Connecticut nearly once a month during the six months we were in New York. We attended performances put on by the women, a showcase of dance, song, and spoken word poetry, shows that took place one day a year. It was an opportunity to hear Robin read the creative writing of her friends at York and also her own. We met her dad and his mother, Robin's grandmother, on a couple of occasions at the show. Robin lost her mom when she was 15 during the second year of her incarceration, a devastating loss. There are two critically important concepts I want to underscore in this podcast and any time we are discussing children in our justice system. The first is the long-term impact of childhood trauma. The second is the relatively new science with regard to the teen brain. Stressful experiences that happen to a child leave an indelible mark. Violence seen or experienced, the loss of a parent to death, divorce, or prison. Drug usage by someone in the family, poverty, neglect, homelessness, abuse of any kind. This is a topic we could talk about at length. In terms of the brain, in adolescence, we now know the prefrontal cortex is not fully developed. That area includes risk-taking, planning ahead, being aware of the consequences of our behavior. That part of the brain becomes mature by age 25. Let's stop a moment and consider the relevance of these two concepts where Robin is concerned. Robin experienced firsthand all of the childhood stressors I just cited as examples. Also, she was just 14 at the time of her crime, hardly mature. 
Did the court take in any of these factors into consideration? No, it did not. Should it have? Certainly. Robin's sentence was 50 years. She'd be 64 at the time of her release. Given medical care in prison is substandard to say the least, there's no guarantee she'd be alive or in decent health when she'd be eligible for parole. Fortunately for Robin, she has had a strong and supportive legal team for many years. Their goal was to file a motion to correct, meaning that if her original sentence could be modified to 40 years, Connecticut would require her to serve 60% of that sentence equaling 24 years. After several starts, stops, delays, postponements, Robin was granted parole in July of 2021, and she left prison on August the 16th, 2021. My husband and I have not been able to see her in person due in large part to the pandemic. We remained connected through video visits while she was still incarcerated as all in-person visits were suspended for about a year and a half. Now we live in New Jersey. It's too long a trip to Connecticut, but Robin just got her learner's permit. So we hope her turn is coming to head our way. It is with great love and great pride, I have the privilege of introducing Robin, our adoptive adopted daughter, adopted not on paper, but in our hearts. It is so exciting to have you on my podcast. Welcome, Robin. Okay. Uh, thank you so much for that introduction. That was really amazing. I'm so happy to be here. All right. I'm happy to have you here. It's a great, uh, great pleasure. So now that I have, in a sense, filled in the background for our listeners, I'd like you to tell us about the things that you did in prison to turn your life around and the goals that you set for yourself. The prison offered a number of programs um, for the women. Can you tell us about some of those programs? Okay, so um, I did get involved with quite a few programs, um, but some of the ones that were really, really instrumental in, I think, developing my character was one, I became a licensed CNA, um, and I worked in the infirmary for several years. Um, I also became a student at Wesleyan University, which I attended for seven years and got my associate's degree in got several classes towards my bachelor's. Um, and then before I got out in the last three years, I became one of 10 mentors who started um, a program called Worth, which is Women Overcoming Recidivism Through Hard Work. And it is a program in which we prepare uh, girls from the age of 18 to 25 to transition back into society. And also while I was in that program, I became a puppy trainer. So I trained dogs for uh, disabled veterans. Boy, that's, you certainly did many, many things, uh, a whole variety of things. Now, the, the puppy program interests me because uh, in a few months, I'm going to have two puppy programs represented on the podcast. And I wasn't aware there are so many of them in prisons across the country. Um, what exactly, uh, 
were you prepared to do with the your, you um, didn't necessarily have puppies. You had rescue dogs. Tell us a little mm -hmm. bit about that. So um, when I before I left, we were working with a program called Forever in My Heart Foundation, and we work only with rescue dogs. So uh, they would rescue dogs from kill shelters, from kennels, um, from puppy mills, um, and we've had dogs come from as far as Texas, and they would take them into their facility, pretty much um, test their temperament, um, how well they did around other dogs before they would bring them into the facility. Uh, once they brought them into the facility, then we would start with basic things like sit and stay down, um, basic commands like that. And then over time, um, we would start to work with them on um, more um, a specific skill set like opening and closing the doors, turning on and off the lights, opening refrigerators, um, stability dogs, so that if there's a, a veteran who have a, has a hard time standing, um, they have a harness in which they can use the dog to um, help them be stable on their feet and things like that. So it was like in a really, really amazing program. We did a lot of really good work. We had some dogs graduate and got to meet the veterans that they went to. So it was a really, really awesome program. That's fantastic. I, in a program like that, everybody wins. The dog wins, yes. the veteran wins, and the women. Yes, in absolutely. Prison. Yeah, fantastic opportunity. Um, now, you also um, talked about your college program. How how did that work that um, uh, Wesleyan was involved in a program like that? Were the professors um, willing to come to the prison or was it done virtually? So um, the way that Wesleyan entered into um, our, our facility was because there was not any um, college programs in our facility that allowed for long-termers. So there was co college programs in the prison, but they were under grants that um, excluded people with a long amount of time or over a certain age. So Wesleyan came into the facility as an all-inclusive program that anybody could enroll into the program. So um, that's how it entered into the facility. And the professors were more than willing to come into the facility. Before I left, um, it was virtual because of the pandemic. But prior to that, um, the, the um, professors came in. We had student liaisons. We had um, students at the, at the college that came in to be TAs to help us with um, writing essays, to help us with our math. I mean, it really was a great experience. They were extremely warm, non-judgmental, and they, for some of us, like myself, who had taken a GED when I was about 17 and hadn't attended any school after that, you know, they really worked with me because, you know, jumping back into school in, in a college environment was hard. It was really hard in the beginning, but they made it so, they made me so comfortable. They helped me with anything that I um, needed. And I really, really enjoyed school. And I plan on continuing and getting my bachelor's now that I'm outside um, the facility. That's that's fantastic. And were you given um, laptops or, you know, uh, computers to work yes. with? Yes. 
Yeah, so we, yeah, in the beginning, we didn't. In the beginning, uh, we had to do presentations, PowerPoints, but mm. how did you do a PowerPoint presentation without a laptop? So that was pretty tricky in the beginning. Uh, we had to really heavily rely on the TAs, give them the information. They would structure it for us and stuff like that. But in time, the facility did allow for us to have um, laptops. And so we worked on our laptops during um, study hall time. And that's where we would, if we had a presentation, if we had research, if we had research requests, that's when we worked on it. So we normally will have maybe two classes out the week and three days out of the week, we will have study hall. So I attended school pretty much five days out of the week um, for the majority of my um, my college career within the facility. And how long did it take uh, to complete your associate's degree? Um, so I was in school for about seven years. Um, because in the beginning there wasn't um, it wasn't a degree program. Wesleyan doesn't actually provide um, associate's degree, so they came in and were giving us just classes, and we were just taking classes just pretty much to expand our minds. And then um, after a couple years, they coupled up with Middlesex Community College, and um, after having a certain amount of credits from both from both schools you were able to get your associates and the bachelor's, um, if you continue, will be through Wesleyan. So, uh, yeah. That's yeah. A, great, a great goal to finish. I know you started, uh, you have a couple classes under your belt for the the bachelor's, but then, yeah. you know, you're out, out of uh, prison. So, well, it's a great, yeah. a great goal. Um, and I also wanted, you mentioned the Worth program as well. Um, how did the Worth program even get started and who was behind the Worth program? So um, in Connecticut, our former Governor Malloy uh, partnered with the commissions of, Commissioner of Corrections, who was Scott uh, Sample, and they went along with um, a couple of uh, lieutenants and captains and wardens of the, some of the different facilities in Connecticut. And they actually traveled to Germany and to Norway to see how their um, um, Department of Corrections was working. And um, over there, the recidivism rate is n not even a fraction of what goes on in the United States and in Connecticut. So after they went over there and saw how they have um, these different programs set up. Um, they have something that's called like restorative justice, which is where people like you actually work with each other instead of it being just all punishment. There's a lot of like personal development um, and character building and skill. Um, um, people learning different skills. They brought that back over um, to um, you know Connecticut. And they decided that they wanted to, you know, put that in some of the facilities. So it started with one of the men's facilities, which is Treasure Correctional, and they started a program called True. And then after about a year of being pretty successful, they decided they want to expand and bring it to the women's facility. And that's how Worth got started. Oh, all right. And then um, the Vera Institute of Justice. Yes. Yes. John Jay College of Justice um, 
trained yes. you, right? Yes. Yeah. And, and yes. What, was, they, what was training like for you? Um. So the training was, it was so awesome. It was so amazing because we had people from Vera Institute come in. We had people from another program that was built um by formerly incarcerated people called milpa and we would they would come in and they would teach us all types of things like motivational interviewing which is when you have a conversation with somebody how to prompt them to want to talk about talk so like it's not just like i'm going to be badgering them with questions it's that i'm just going to encourage them and nudge them a little bit so that they want to talk and they want to tell me what's going on. So things like that, um, restorative circle. So if there is an issue or there is a conflict, how can we sit down with all everyone involved and have a productive conversation that can have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and we can come to a solution where all parties are, are comfortable. Um, also, um, the training was kind of like how to break down the walls and the barriers between us, the inmates, and the staff, because we were extremely close with the staff. So it was really reprogramming, like, our minds and reprogramming, like, the way that, you know, the Department of Correction wants you to view uh, correctional officers and the way that correctional officers view inmates. So there was all different types of trainings that we went through in order to work as a team and to be, you know, the very best that we could be so that we can give these young girls the best opportunity while they're in the facility so that when they do transition, they have um, uh, a smaller chance of re-entering the facility. And before I left, um, out of like, I think about 90 something girls that we had transitioned from the program, we had less than 10 that actually um, re-entered. So mm. the numbers were, were definitely reflecting um, the hard work that was being put into the program it definitely worked absolutely that that's fantastic what what a shame that more prisons uh, don't think to adopt something like this i think what what changed the governor's mind was seeing firsthand what was going on in germany and norway and realizing we can do that too and i i, mm -hmm. I give him a lot of credit for mm -hmm. uh trying to do that so you you um were a, a mentor and what what was the the difference in your living situation when you were moved to the worth program so on the maximum security side is where i was housed my entire uh incarceration until i did enter into the worth program so it was just like a cell, bunk beds, a sink, and, you know, a toilet. It was a really small cell um, on a tier that there's 12 rooms. There can be up to 24 people on a tier. Um, so once I'm transitioned into Worth, it was on the minimum security side. So it was actually in the dorm. Um, they, they renovated the entire dorm. And it was set up that I was in a cube. Uh, the mentors ha were in cubes on one side and the mentees were in cubes on the other side. So in the mentee side of the cube, there was four bunk beds so it could house eight girls. And the mentors, we had beds side by side. So there was um, 
just two beds. You would share your cube with another mentor. Um, by the time I got out, there was only three mentors left in the program. So we all had our own cube, which was like really, really good because, you know, you don't really often get like to your own space. And even right. though it was a dorm environment, it was like a very comfortable environment. You can actually like decorate and put your stuff out and, you know, the girls can come and sit in your cube and talk and, you know, it was a very, very comfortable very, environment. Very different. Yeah. Well, yeah. we we are out of time today, but you have said that you will come back next week and tell us some more because we haven't even talked about your transition. So I thank you for being with us today. And I very much encourage our listeners to tune in next time to hear more about Robin's time out here in the world. So thank you yeah. for being with us today and we'll see you Absolutely. next time. All right. All right. Come back to see us on Pursuing Justice. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to my podcast today. You have been listening to Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio. And I'm your host, Harriet.